Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as the golf world prepares for the final major of the year, the AIG Women's Open at Carnoustie. And what an event that will be, what a course that is. Really looking forward to watching that unfold this week. We'll have a full wrap-up of that tournament next week, but for this week, we had an opportunity that was just too good to pass up. The chance to chat with one of the game's best writers of the last 40 years, and so we grabbed it. Bill Fields is royalty in the business of golf scribbling, with a resume too long to run through here. Suffice to say, he was awarded the 2020 PGA of America Lifetime Achievement Award and has four times won the Golf Writers Association of America Annual Writing Contest. Bill's nothing short of a legend in the industry, and it's a real pleasure and, to be honest, a privilege to have him here with us today. Bill, welcome. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Rod, and pleasure to be with you you and uh, Adrian today. Uh only been to Australia once a couple of years ago for the President's Cup, but uh, certainly uh, I've known known a lot of folks from there, and uh, it's a, it's a great country. Yeah, well, in golf, we certainly uh, we've certainly spread our tentacles far and wide here from Australia in the world of golf. Let's talk about that, Bill. How long have you been writing about covering it? As I just discovered before pressing the record button, starting photographing and writing about the game initially. How many years has it been for you? Yeah. Well, almost 40 years. I got out of college uh, 40 years ago this year. So uh, uh, sort of worked uh, worked and got in a golf PR role for about a year and then wor- was a general sports writer for a couple of years in, in the South at a couple of different cities. But then uh, got a job at Golf World US, the weekly, in 1984. So pretty much since then, I've been mostly mostly golf. And we'll talk about golf and we'll talk about media because they're two of well. Media is one of my favourite topics. I think Logue gets a bit bored with it, but I always think it's a very interesting one. But we'll talk about golf as well. Was golf always the goal for your writing career? Um, I don't know, always the goal, but I, I did. Uh, it did merge kind of my my, my teen years, I guess. I uh, I picked up the game as a kid. My family weren't golfers. Uh, I got my father into the game, which was kind of fun, and. Um, but I, I was always interested in, you know, trying to be a player. I never quite got there. I was maybe a four at my best, um, despite all the time and effort I put into it. So I obviously did something wrong. <laughs> the game doesn't but, love uh, us all back, Bill. <laughs> it didn't. It's humbling, isn't it? I, like, a lot of us have put more effort into golf than almost any other yeah. endeavor that we've had. And the best we can get to is... A bit better than average. Right? Yeah. I, I really, really tried as a, as a kid. And I just, you know, I, I loved it. It kept me out of trouble, I guess. And, uh, you know, eventually sort of uh, led led me to to what's been, a you know, an enjoyable career. Um, I always loved newspapers. My family got a, a daily paper delivered uh, uh, every morning when I was a kid. So, you know, I would sit down with my father and, you know, he'd read the paper. And, you know, that that, that kind of built a, a love for, for uh uh, media, as we've come to call it, but but back then the press, and uh, uh, just kind of kind of went from there. Let's go. We'll come back to the newspapers because I'm, I'm fascinated by that as well. How did you fall into golf if nobody in your family played? Well, I grew up in Southern Pines, North Carolina, which is uh, five miles from Pinehurst. I was actually born in the hospital in Pinehurst, which probably you know a, a mile or less from the from the number two course. So. Um, was born in the golf capital. If, if not, you know, born in the game, my family, like I said, did not play, but you know, you grow up in that area and uh, you know, you, you see a lot of golf courses uh, just on the course of uh, your, your, your life. And uh, it just, you know, sort of got drawn to it. I played also a lot of sports as a kid, baseball, basketball, um, 
uh, we our neighborhood, whatever the season was, that's what we played. But eventually gravitated to golf when uh, I realized I, I had a pretty good glove as a third baseman in Little League, but not much of a bat. And uh, uh, I kind of turned to golf when I was in, in junior high school. Which tells us a bit about golf. Would the more sensible question be, Bill, how did your family not play golf living in that part of the world? Well, it was it was a pretty, uh, you know, my, my mom was a bank teller. And my dad, uh, at that time, when I was a little kid, he had done a, uh, a lot of different things after getting out of the war. Uh, he'd been a farmer. He ran a gas station. He uh, was a clerk in a liquor store. He worked in a factory. Uh, so, he, you know, he kind of had a bit of a hard scrabble uh, uh, career, but eventually got into small town law enforcement. And the last 10 years of his life, uh, he was a, he was a policeman and a deputy. So he, he really enjoyed that. And he also the last decade of his life after I got into golf, uh, he really did too. He, he, he wasn't a sophisticated golfer, but he, he loved to play. And, uh, we had, we had a lot, he had a lot of fun and I had a lot of fun when I, when I played with him. Mm. I'm always intrigued by this and maybe seems like a minor point people who don't have any sort of golf background, how they actually find them. do you recall the first time you were introduced to the game? Who did that and how it went from there? Wow. The very first introduction, I, I don't know if I, 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 I know I, I found uh, when we cleaned out our family home a couple of years ago, uh, when my, my mom had to move out, uh, she since passed away in her 90s, but uh, I did find a couple of junior clubs. Uh, in fact, I think they're, they're right here. I have them. Uh, red shaft, oh, uh, wood, uh, wooden shaft with a little plastic head and uh I must have banged that one around because of some tape there, a little repair job. But uh, so uh, clearly I, I got a taste of it early. I remember I got my first club. It was a, a Croydon brand. I don't know if you all had that brand in Australia. I don't recall. K-R-O-Y-D-O-N. But that was my first single club, a putter, and uh, eventually got a set of uh, starter set of clubs uh, the Christmas when I was 10. So that's when I really uh, – set out about it in earnest, I guess. The reason I ask, Bill, is because it's kind of important, isn't it? We kind of overlook it. We all become golfers and then you know, we talk about golf and we get into the golf media and we do other things in golf and all the rest of it. And we all kind of forget how it started for us. But if there's going to be a next generation of golfers, those stories are incredibly important, aren't they? How do we get the next bunch of people introduced to the game? Well, I think uh, a lot of people have put a lot of time and energy into that very question over the last 10 years or so, I would guess, and uh, through, through different kind of programs. Um, I think it's, I think sometimes people may overthink it a little bit, but it basically people, uh, kids have to be uh, exposed to golf and they have to have a place to do it. Um, you know, if a kid lives in, a, in an environment where there's no golf course, there's not even a field to, to take swings in, uh, which is that's somewhere I took. Uh, some of my early swings were in my yard and in a larger field uh, that was kind of a, a recreation area in our town. Uh, that's where I hit my first shots. So you have to, you know, I know a lot of kids in golf now, they have the, the soft golf balls and stuff that they, they try and, uh, you know, but I think the, the access uh, is key. How much has that changed in your time in golf, do you reckon? Uh, access for kids? Yeah, the access proposition for, for bringing people to the game. The, as a business and an industry, we've gotten much bigger, and it feels like one of the things that might have been left behind is those very simple beginnings in the game for people. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I never became a parent, but but certainly from from just looking at society and knowing people that have been, I think, you know, kids' sports has gotten so organized, and it, and it is even today with the uh, – um, you know, I covered the U.S. Kids Championship in in the, in you in the Pinehurst area about a decade ago or so, 
And it was just incredible. I mean, these are clearly skilled young golfers, children, but just the involvement of their parents in the in their golf lives was was striking to me because when when I was a kid, it was like you. It's, it was a much more independent thing. Your your parents dropped you off at the course. You spent, <laughs> you spent the day, and and then they they came and got you, or you you walked home, or whatever. Uh, it just wasn't. I think golf was a more solitary pursuit uh, a generation or two ago. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, things definitely change with with how involved parents are in their in their children's golf lives. I believe precursor to the iPad as a babysitter, like is that what golf used to be? <laughs> Drop them off at the course, involved and- <laughs> slash interfering. <laughs> there you go, Adrian. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but you it was know, certainly, um, yeah, it was um, certainly uh, very different uh, for us, wasn't it? Like you get dropped off at the golf course at the start of the day, your parents might not even understand what. What, golf, what golf. it's all about, but <laughs> right. you know they they just know that they can come and pick you up at the end of the day after you've had. Well, in Australia, it'd be a meat pie after eighteen holes, and yeah, uh, and a red red coke or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, the world changed, and there's a lot, there's safety reasons and the whole whole bit. But I don't know. I think I think I looking back on my own childhood and teenage years, I I learned an awful lot playing with adults being sort of left to fend for yourself. Uh, I don't make it sound like it was some wilderness. I mean, it was a, <laughs> you know, a, a low key local yeah. golf course, but still you're out there by yourself and you, you know, you, you may, you may bet a, a, a quarter or a dime and you kind of, you know, you, you learn how to lose or win and you know, it, it, it it's kind of fun. Don't you reckon the focus on professional golf has changed that markedly bill? It, and you, you covered that U.S. kids championship that you mentioned there. I can't imagine that for you, it would have been quite a while of playing golf before you ever thought, hang on a minute, you might be able to do this for a living. Whereas now I think there's an awful lot of say, right, let's get the kids into golf because there's a lot of money in it. Right. Uh, the, the, the big money, clearly a uh, huge effect, I think, on a lot of different areas. But no, did, did I have a dream of being a tour player? Uh, absolutely. After a certain while. Uh, sure, I did, because I was I was obsessed with golf and wanted to become a good player and and was love to read everything about it and watch the, you know, the two hour chunks of tournaments that we got to watch on TV on the weekend, which were usually holes 14 or 15 through 18. That was it. You know, that was, that was a golf production. And, you know, now I spend part of my time the last few years as a researcher in the booth uh, on the NBC broadcast. And, and it's just, it's a, for me, it was been a revelation just to see how much goes into a modern uh, golf production with all the people and all the equipment. And I mean, it's huge. And, uh, it always was, but but certainly what the viewer saw was much more limited. What but we savor. I think you, everybody who's into the game, savored that uh, what we did get. We 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 couldn't wait for those opportunities when we got to see golf on TV. You know, whether it was the you know in our country, U.S. Open, the ABC used to have the the great theme music. And when you heard that music, you knew that Jim McKay was going to be doing the call, and you were going to see some some major golf. And uh, th- those are great memories. This brings us neatly to one of the things we do like to discuss here, the impact of professional golf on the game more broadly. Logue, is it a better world or is it better and better and worse are the wrong terms to use here? We live in a world now where Bill's right. The, you can watch in Australia, you can start Thursday night and stop watching golf Monday morning and really not have much time in between where there isn't some sort of live golf happening on your TV screen. Is that better for the game than what you and I probably remember and what Bill's talking about there where – a few times during the year, you'd get to watch some of the big tournaments, and then at the end of the year, all the stars would come, and you go out to the golf course and actually see them. They're two very different models, aren't they? 
yeah, and a lot of the time you'd go out and watch amateur golf because you know that might be the only tournament that was on in your area, and you know the top amateurs were kind of the superstars where I grew up, uh, and then occasionally the pros would come to town. Um, but it's ironic because there's so much golf on TV now. But uh, I recall there was a time when I'd, I'd scramble for the the Monday or the Tuesday Sydney Morning Herald to get that two inches of column space that would have the scores from these exotic places like Kemper and Pensacola. <laughs> Pensacola, <laughs> it's something about and, Pensacola, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there was this mystery to those to those names of these US cities. Uh, and uh, now it's completely demystified, of course. We we get to watch it all on TV and uh, it's all pretty banal and <laughs> very homogenized. It's a very similar experience, whatever tournament you turn on, they've, they've lost their identity. And uh, I think that is reflected in people joining golf now. They're in a huge rush to get to that formal form of the game rather than the casual form of the game that we just we, we grew up with, where is it a you different, just go out, you grab your clubs, and you go out and have a hit. It's a different journey of discovery, isn't it? I wonder whether it changes the end product that you find of it. I can recall, Bill, and this was my first real understanding of the impact of that golf on television all the time, because, of course, when we got pay TV and the golf was on all the time, it was fantastic. You turn on the TV and you watch all of the golf. 2006, Jeff Ogilvie won the US Open at the Australian Open that year, which would have been in the December, if I'm not mistaken, at Royal Sydney. I stood on the 10th tee of the... Friday morning, right? It was cold. It was a cold morning, but Jeff Ogilvie hit off, and there would have been he was the reigning U.S. Open champion in Australia. And there wouldn't have been more than twenty of us following him. And if that had happened in the eighties or the nineties, and that had been Wayne Grady, Ian Baker, Finch, Craig Norman, obviously always had a huge pull. There'd have been hundreds of people turn out there mm. to see the U.S. Open champion right here in our backyard in Sydney. And yet we were already in two thousand and six at a period where it was like, eh, Tiger's not playing, Phil's not here. It's not that big a deal. The impacts are unforeseen, but that's sort of what's happened, certainly for us here at Golf in Australia. I imagine there's been some impact on most of the tournaments in America as well that you would see. Well, yeah, I think, you know, Tiger, Tiger, for all the good he did uh, in terms of, you know, enriching uh, the pockets of his fellow pros, he certainly did a lot of that. And, and uh, us in the media, Bill, to be fair, we yeah, all yeah, benefited he, uh, in the media from... He look, at, golf look at all the riches made... Rod's got. Yeah, we've <laughs> got a President's Cup jumper on. Yeah, right. he, uh, yeah, it, it uh, and with that, and with so many tournaments, every tournament being televised, it did at times feel like, uh, you know, if Tiger's not there, then it's a you know it's a B or C level event. Which you know, it, it, if you gauge everything by Tiger, it, it kind of was, given how you know dominating and captivating he was. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the growth of it, the growth of it, you know, it came with a, with a cost, I think, as you all allude to, um, that, that every tournament that Tiger didn't play doesn't make it a bad tournament. But in terms of the interest, especially for the more casual fan who was maybe drawn to golf to watch golf, not necessarily play it because, you know, Tiger certainly had an impact on uh, some people taking up the game, kids, uh, I don't think it was as broad as it was initially uh, hoped. Mm -hmm. But um, to the casual fan, if Tiger wasn't playing, then, you know, it, it wasn't a, as big a deal. Uh, so I think, you know, it was a, it was a two-sided coin there in, in terms of Tiger. I distinctly remember 20 years ago my mum saying to me, I think Tiger finished third one week. She said, well, what's wrong with Tiger? Is he all right? It's like... <laughs> he, he finished third. Was that that? Remember, he won six in a row. 
Was that 2000? Uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, it was around the uh, mid mid 2000. 90, 99 to, yeah, 69, because he was going for yeah. that. I think Miller had won seven or something, you know, in the modern era or something like that. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's certainly changed thing. What's that done? What's the impact of that, Bill? Is that better for the game? Are we at a point where there's too much golf? These are real, very real questions that organisations like the PGA Tour or the European Tour have to really think about, don't they? Is it necessarily good for the game? More is just good because there's more. You mean more more televised golf? More televised, yeah. more tournament golf. Mm-hmm. More legs. I, I, I mean, I, I do think that um, it, it's a bit overloaded in terms of, okay, the regular season just ended – Yes, awesome. yesterday yeah. U.S. in Greensboro, and now the first playoff event is this week. Um, I know NBC is going to. We're going to do that. The, not this week's event, but the the, lat, the the BMW and the Tour Championship will be there for those. And then that season's over. And then there'll be a bit of a pause, and the season will start up again. I, I you know, I understand why they did the wraparound season, but I think, boy, a calendar year, calendar year schedule. Really, I mean, that's the way it always worked before it. It's uh, it seems a, l- a little odd the way they do the wraparound. I know why they do it, but um, it's like how much you know how much can people be interested in, in a sport uh, all year long? It, it I think people would have a little bit of a hunger to reengage with it in January if there was a bit of a bit more of a true break. But there just isn't now. I mean, and you know, people say, well, the tour chef fewer tournaments, but if 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 they can line up sponsors, I mean, that's their job is to create opportunities for the players. That's their job. So I, you know, I don't fault them in, in that regard, but yet I think overall as you, there is maybe a bigger impact that is, is not necessarily positive. Yeah. Putting on our business hats and pretending we know anything about business. Like, is there a business case for less tournaments? Yeah. I mean, you look at some other sports counterintuitively, well, it's not counterintuitive, it's just economics that you make something more scarce that can become more valuable. And I think the that Olympics, works for the, the NFL, World Cup. for example. Well, the Olympics the, and the World Cup are the prime example. Every four well, that, years, they're the right. two biggest sports events in the world by some margin. The Ryder Cup is every second year. It's, a, it's the biggest event in golf globally every two years. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it, it's. I, I wouldn't say we've got too much golf because I quite like that there's a place to play now for these skilled professionals like it used to be very hard to make a living on tour you could be if you were good enough to be on the european tour that meant you're probably one of the top 10 golfers in the whole of australia which is unbelievable but uh 10th best golfer in australia is gonna be struggling to have made a living uh on the european tour say you know 30 40 years ago mm-hmm. um but now there's a place to play for the 50th 60th, 100th best golfer in Australia. And why is that And good? I think that's a good thing. Why, um, why is that good? I don't think it, it doesn't all need to be televised, I think. But, and there's too, in terms of the televising of golf, there's too much of the same type of golf being televised and it, it chokes out the opportunity for other forms of golf to, you know, get on our screens. So, yeah, I, I do think the, the wraparound season is, a, is an issue. I, I can see why... Uh, damaged us here in Australia. There's no question. And other parts. That's of the world. right. There's no room for golf outside of the US with the current US tour schedule. That's the problem. Yeah. The, the next trick they're going to have to pull is to work out how to change the Gregorian calendar to have more weeks in the year because <laughs> that, <laughs> don't tempt them. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, there's just not enough weeks, and uh, it, it, make it more scarce. It would perhaps be more interesting, and it would allow everybody, golf fans, to see different forms of golf all around the world. 
or more varied. I'd imagine from American, the American point of view, Bill, what's changed with all this 24-7 televised golf, one of the things that you've got over there that you didn't have 20 or 30 years ago is being able to watch golf from other parts of the world. And that seems from the outside to have been quite a hit. The opportunity is there, is it not, for the tour? Let's go forward 10 years and say the PGA Tour now owns the European Tour and it's just one big global conglomerate. There's an opportunity there, is there not, for a varied golf calendar, which I think everybody would be behind, where you do what you used to do and you get to watch golf from Australia in the middle of the night in America over your winter and our summer. Yeah, I remember 20 years ago or so when uh, Kari Webb was making her big impact on the LPGA Tour and they they started, Golf Channel started showing uh, a couple of the women's events uh, in Australia. You know, it was on at nighttime here. And it was, I remember being so eager to watch those because she was such a good player at the time. You wanted to see what she could do, but it was also, you know, the courses, you know, hey, what do these courses look like? Hmm. You know, I think there there was that, I think your point is very, uh, is very valid. I think, you know, if you if you eventually uh, have a, a a tour event, a PGA tour event in Buenos Aires or whatever it might be, it would it would be cool to see a tournament played there. I know we've we've NBC's done the, the did the tournament in Mexico City uh, a number of years in, in the recent past, and uh, you know it's it's that's kind of a cool thing to see. It's it's you know it's an inland course. It's not you know it's but it's you know it's at altitude and uh, you know it's a little different from your your run of the mill. Uh, East Coast U.S. or, or Southwest U.S. Uh, course. I think claustrophobic um, is the word you're looking for there, Bill. That Chipotle <laughs> golf course is what we call yes. claustrophobic. <laughs> well, well, the most striking thing about it is that the tour couldn't send out their advanced team and replace all the sand in all the bunkers. Like, it, it just has the bunkers that the members there have to put up with. Yeah. Well, that goes to a, a good point. And uh, I just, it was a, John Steinbrader uh, had a, a good story on the, Global Golf Post this morning about uh, a story about increasing green speeds, and I think that the, the speed of the greens and the uniformity of uh, maintenance, um, you know, I'll probably get a golf superintendent to to get mad at me for saying it, but because obviously if you're in that craft, you want to you want to do your job as best you can. But I think the the almost absurdly manicured green space that we play the game on now in many places, it's like wait a minute, this is this is overkill. This is too much. This is, this is, it, it wasn't meant to be like this just because a mower can, can get the grass down to 14. Does that mean it, it should, you know? Um, I think these are all questions that are, are valid for the game uh, moving forward, especially in, with environmental concerns and a climate crisis where, you know, you, you, you may, you may have to step back how things look just for, for real world reasons. There are broader issues at play, aren't Yeah, language now. I was just going to say, Bill's, Bill's climbed right into our wheelhouse here. You go, Logan. <laughs> this is- Fill him in. It is true, though, isn't it? And we talked about it a lot here, and it's, it's one of my bugbears. The image the game has outside the game, Adrian, is by far, I think, its biggest issue. Forget about distance, the ball. All those internal golf discussions aren't going to matter jot if the rest of the world decides, you know what? You use too much water. You take up too much space. You haven't made the case. We're going to close you down. That's the, the very real threat for golf, isn't it? Yeah, forget about the the nice stories we've got about getting into golf, ab- about, you know, why we uh, fell in love with, like, just whacking a, a rock with a stick and, uh, you know, all the, the endless sort of time and fascination associated with that. The message golf generally sends now is look at this, uh, look at this sport that's um, uh, – you know, in in many ways, just using resources irresponsibly and 
just not going with the times in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, so and that's not the right message at all for golf to be sending, I think. And, and it doesn't get to the thing that hooks people into golf. I don't think green grass, hyper green grass, is necessarily the thing that goes that clicks in somebody's head and says, oh, "I want to go play golf." Um, it's the experience of hitting a golf ball. You get a you get a golf club in a person's hands and have them swing it. A certain percentage of those people are going to get hooked, yeah. and uh, a, a certain very percentage, yeah, not necessarily a large percentage, but a, a certain percentage. Mm. And I think uh, the pandemic in the U.S. anyway, where you know after the first you know brutal uh, few weeks uh, of the of the virus, people start to realize, okay, you can be outside if you observe social distance, you can be outside golf mm. actually turned out to be a thing that people could, could do over here. Yep. Um, it coincided with people, some people of a certain stature, they, they obviously had different work situations. So they had more time in their day or their week to actually play golf. But I think those people that were playing, they weren't really saying, okay, this is a perfectly manicured fairway I'm playing on today. They were just happy to get out. And like you said, experience the game at its uh, uh, base level. And I, and I think, you know, sometimes with the quest for uniformity and and perfection, uh, some of that stuff gets lost, and that's that's to the detriment of, of everything, I think. Yeah, we forget the simplistic part of it. It was the same here, by the way, Bill. The pandemic has – you can't get a tea time on a golf course. In Sydney, it haven't been able to for the best part of 18 months. It's been a real boom for golf. In that sense, you remember Frank Thomas was the technical director of the USGA many years ago, South Africa, sure. I think, for me. He, uh, sure. he tipped me into something one day, which I've never forgotten, and he was absolutely right. Was, we were talking about what's the appeal of golf, and he said, well, it's no different to when you sit in your office and you're sort of daydreaming about something where you're chewing away at an idea trying to solve it. I mean, you get a little bit of paper and you screw it up and you throw it in the bin. He said, well, you know, it's the same thing with golf. If the bin's right underneath and you just drop it in, that's not going to hold your attention for too long. If the bin's down the end of the hallway and you can't get the paper, that's not going to hold your attention for too long. Golf's in the sweet spot where the shot's makeable, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that golf satisfies. The green grass and the, the optics and the aesthetics of it are all secondary to that. That's the thing that gets people into golf. And then they start getting taken away with this notion of wonderfully presented golf courses and perfectly manicured fairways. And we forget that in golf quite often, I think, which brings me to, neatly, the media bill. Whose job is it? You grew up in a house of newspapers that you read every day. And the job of the newspaper was to tell you everything that was going on in the world that they could fit in the paper that might be of relevance, and depending how close to home it was, that would dictate the size of the story and where it was placed in the paper. Whose responsibility, whose job is it to tell that story outside of golf and to tell that story to golf? I And your old mate John Huggan and good friend of ours here at the podcast too, and occasionally I get it, get accused of talking the game down whenever you point out problems with it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think... Uh I think the media have a responsibility to be honest. I think, I think, and candid. I don't think you want to, you know, you don't want to take cheap shots. I've never been one to to do that. Uh, but I think you point out problems where you think they exist, and uh, I think that's that's healthy. Um, at the same time, I think um, it's very easy for people who may not uh, be a fan of the sport, the game. To, to take cheap shots at it and, and criticize it as just being for uh, the wealthy class, which, as we all know, that's not all that's not true. It's never been true. Um, golf is not the enclave of only of only the rich, rich people of the world. There's always been a swath of people that, that play golf uh, who are not wealthy. And it, it always really drives me crazy to see stories that perpetuate that 
that that myth. It's lazy, isn't it, Bill? That's lazy journalism, and we see a lot of it from people who know nothing about golf who write stories for papers because it's man bites dog kind of stuff. You know, we had it here recently, a couple of very wealthy golf clubs here in Sydney claiming the government assistance package that was brought in because of the COVID-19, putting people off and trying to keep people in jobs and whatnot. And we saw it straight away in one of the papers here in Sydney, two stories about two of the richest clubs in Sydney claiming that government benefit. And yet their income went up for the year. That story was true of a lot of big companies, but golf was a very mm. easy target in that instance. Sure. It's just lazy journalism, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it, it happens sometimes when you really don't expect it. There was a, a big-name writer from a major paper in America uh, went over to the Olympic golf one day and, and kind of wrote a, a bit of a, a hit piece uh, just sort of picking apart that, hey, this was a, a private club where they were playing the Olympic competition and well, yeah, duh. It was a, it's a private club. A lot of private clubs exist in Japan, especially. Uh, I don't know that golf culture, culture very well, but I don't think there are necessarily a lot of daily fee courses. That's just the way it is there. I don't, you know, so to, to, to pick on uh, Kasuma Gaseki for being a private club and hey, having to change out of your sweaty clothes to have lunch. I mean, my God, that just seemed like a, they, it seemed like the writer just went for the, the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. When, okay, you can point out things, but it, it seemed like a, a bit much. It also sort of suggests that nobody from within golf is any different or trying to do anything about those kinds of things as well, which is also not the case. And that's part of the problem with it. Yeah. And I think, I think you know, golf golf has plenty in its past in, in America, especially uh, mm-hmm. particularly to, to be uh, sorry about in, in terms of how it, it treated uh, uh, race and, and class and, and all of it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, everything about the game is bad or, or anything or that things haven't evolved because they really have. Um, a lot of people, as you said, have tried to make the game more inclusive in recent years. And uh, there have been there have been nice strides made on that front. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But is it different than it was 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, absolutely it is. Yeah, I tend to agree. You mentioned Tokyo there. What was the response of other? You went to Tokyo. We'll talk about that shortly. You went to the Olympics, which had been not on your radar, I imagine, when you started golf riding those 30 or 40 years ago. What was the response amongst others? Or did you, I imagine it was an odd one. You probably didn't get to mingle much with anybody outside of those covering the golf. No, it was uh, it was pretty limited because of the, the pandemic restrictions. Uh, we were, the, those of us in the TV production part of it were, you know, we were in a hotel in uh, uh, Kawagoa City, which is where the the prefecture where the golf course was. was. And uh, no, we didn't we didn't get to go into Tokyo at all, uh, unless you'd been there more than fourteen days. So it was very limited. But um, you know, people were were friendly, and uh, it was certainly a, a, a neat thing to be able to do. As you said, I wouldn't have uh, as a kid. I would uh, like every kid. We'd we'd play in the yard uh, when the Olympics came around and pretended to be high jumpers or long jumpers or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, actually going to an Olympics, I didn't think it was probably in the cards. And to get to do it at age sixty-two is even though it was just it was just the golf competition it was kind of fun. Yeah, pretty amazing. You took some pretty amazing photos uh, while you were there. Speaking of the media, Bill, and I want to ask you about this specifically. We're seeing we're seeing more of this. I don't know whether it's going to be the future of coverage of the game or various uh, politics as well. We, we see this idea of where you've got a newsletter. I know Jeff Shackleford's got one as well called The Quadrilateral. Yours is called The Albatross. Is this the way what I would con- would term good or professional coverage of the game is going to go in the future? What's been your experience with that? Top it where they can find it firstly and how they can sign up and make sure that it continues to be published. But what's that whole, what's happening in that whole space, do you yeah. reckon? 
Well, the whole idea of, the, of these uh, these newsletters, uh, the, mine is called the Albatross, as you, as you mentioned, and it's on the Substack platform. Thank you for not calling it the Double Eagle, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to be be treat my friends abroad uh, the right way. And uh, thank you. Uh, I have called them double eagles in the past. But, uh, <laughs> I will confess that double eagle really doesn't make sense, and albatross is what it should be called. So uh, I've, never one, I've never made I've never made a double eagle nor an albatross. No. So um, <laughs> indeed, I never made a hole in one either. But uh, no, it, I think uh, I think you know the, the newsletter kind of thing seems to be the the thing of the the thing of the, the flavor of the day, and I, I think it's going to have a a future. I think. Um, Rod, as we were speaking before we start turn the microphones on, um, you know, there's so much out there now from from different voices that you know people couldn't access uh, even ten or fifteen years ago. Um, I wrote a column last year where I noted the the uh, the English uh, uh, female professional Maggie McLaren, and how, you know she writes about the game, and you know it, she wouldn't have had a place to to put those thoughts necessarily where uh, someone uh, in America could read them uh, as I've been able to, and as many others have been able to read them, her very honest and, and, and very, very literate uh, commentary about her, her golf and the game, you know, years ago, of course, uh, Peter Thompson wrote for, wrote for the paper in Australia, but in, in America, we, we didn't get to see that. Um, so I think the broadening of the, the media world has been good in many, many ways, but yet uh, it's also hard to distinguish yourself Um uh, you know, here I've I've done what I've done for forty years almost, and and certainly have uh, created a bit of a reputation as a what for whatever that I've done. But yet, it's still hard at, at this point to separate uh, myself from from everybody else. Given there's so much coming from people, you know, do I really want to read this guy? I'm reading it over here, and uh, you know, no, do I want to pay for it? Now, just you know, so it, it it's a complicated uh, scenario. It's not just golf. Meg, by the way, has been on the podcast here. Couple of times, she's one of our one of our favourite guests here on. Uh, on oh, cool. Uh, good, good. Yeah, she's a she's a great one. Of them. And as you say, an extraordinarily good writer. You're, you've been more of a consumer for most of your life, Logue. You now, whether you like it or not, you are kind of working media, doing a weekly podcast. I realise how difficult that must have been for you <laughs> well, to say. I, I nearly I nearly choked on it as it came out, but uh, we've talked about this. But what's your take on this whole as a consumer and for consumption? It's never been so easy to get published. It's never been so hard to get paid. Writing used to be a trained profession, like being a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter. It was a skill that you did an apprenticeship and you learned, and then you were at whatever level you were. If you bill, you go using your chisels to make stairs to create amazing masterpieces. Fabulous writer, done some amazing work over the years. If you were more like me, you were a daily hacker, you produced daily reports about stuff, and there was a place for you. It's not like that anymore. As a consumer, does it matter? Is it only us, people like me and Bill, <laughs> sort of given our time and energy to become that, that that bothers? Because it does bother me. I think I think you lose something when there's when you move away from that model of, of it being a profession. Yeah, I certainly think you do. Uh, look, I used to love, you know, getting the, I, the Golf Digest every month and pour over every single column and the, the feature stories I thought were, were fantastic and the the cycle now for a golf digest is is so vicious that you know they're they're publishing I, I subscribe to the the RSS feed now for a lot of these magazines and I'm shocked that they post 15 articles a day and and that's such a grindstone and uh, 
I, I can't, don't. You can't read. I don't read. Can you? You I can't. read hardly any of it. I scan scan the headlines. I, I I think I'd probably be getting more value out of a publication if I was reading everything they published, but it was only once a month rather than fifteen articles a day. Um, Keller, you mean McKellar uh, Golfers Journal, that kind of idea? Yeah, and so that still exists. I, I think as consumers, we've got more choice than ever, don't we? Um, look, you can you can go to fairly obscure blogs like a Will Bardwell or something and, and get some superb writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fantastic that someone like a Will Bardwell has a voice and uh, is contributing to the uh, to the discourse in golf. Golf needs more input. Um, Will Bardwell. More, more different voices. From Will Bardwell, but it doesn't get that, does it, Like What it gets is a ri- for every one Will Bardwell or Garrett Morrison that the golf, in- the golf internet world has thrown up, there's a thousand numbskulls who shouldn't be allowed near a keyboard. That's the truth of it, no? <laughs> there um, is, unfortunately, and the consumer has to wade through all of that, and it, it's a lot of noise. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for good content, there's more of it than there's ever been, mm-hmm. but it's it's just very bit difficult to find. Uh, I think podcasts are great because it allows uh, it allows somebody to really explore a point at length, and the time input is uh, ironically a lot less than it takes to write a piece one for, for like a long-form article. And the investment in that time is shared by by you and the listener. Um, the, the listener puts a lot more time into listening to a podcast than they do into reading an article. So I always I feel like it it addresses that imbalance of effort in a really interesting way where uh, you know Bill might spend two weeks researching a piece for a magazine and somebody might flick through that in the magazine within two minutes, um, whereas there's this much more balanced interaction between content creator and, and consumer for something like a podcast where Bill spends an hour talking to us, the consumer spends an hour listening to it or, you know, 45 minutes if they're listening at one point. I've had a look at, I've had a look at yeah. the stats, Logan. Uh, it's, not quite, it's not quite that. Are they gonna, they is somebody going to listen to us and we're going to sound like chipmunks? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he does, Bill. He's one. I can't do it. He, he's one of the speed-up listener guys. I can't do it. You've got to train it. your ears to it. No, you don't. But, uh, you just mainly don't do cuts it. out the gaps between words, so oh, you, don't, right. you don't sound like a chipmunk. You'll you um, you sound fantastic. Interesting point, uh, Adrian, on that. Uh, I think – as someone who's who's now, uh, while I still contribute uh, different places, uh, you know, larger outlets, uh, you know, writing this this thing on my own now, you know, I think uh, there's more space for people to analyze or commentate from their from their homes or you know, but it's uh, the ability uh, for someone, an outlet, to pay someone to go somewhere and spend time on the ground, talk to people, see things in the flesh. That's that's the kind of thing that you know, is, is, uh, harder to come by these days. And, uh, I think that's, I just think back about some of the, even historical pieces I did years ago, you know, I did a story about, um, Willie, Willie Anderson, the, 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 the four-time U.S. Open winner. And, you know, I literally went to a, you know, golf world paid, paid me, paid, you know, paid my expenses to go down to Pennsylvania, uh, on, on a train and, and, uh, spend a night or two and go to a library where I literally f- found the cause of death as, as, as indicated in the files in that uh, city uh, archive. And, and that's the kind of thing that that added a lot of depth to that story. And, uh, you know, if golf world wasn't willing to pay those expenses for that trip, I wouldn't have come up with it. 
And I think it's it's easier to be able to offer commentary uh, or long distance analysis, but there there is no uh, substitute for being somewhere and doing that uh, in person uh, reporting. And I think as the as the media business has contracted, there's there people the media outlets are less willing to spend that money, and that's a shame. You're talking about the difference between reporting and blogging, essentially, aren't you, Bill? Uh, that's the truth. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, reporting and or or just just you know off the cuff uh, commentary. Of course, I mean part of what I do of on my newsletter is is I do offer analysis or or opinion. But uh, I think uh, if everybody is doing that and there's there's no uh, reporting, then uh, the game and the the golf media is is losing out. Yeah, it's not been some evil plot by somebody to do away with reporting as a notion. As you say, it's a very complicated business. We're in the middle of it. Who knows how it's going to pan out or where it's going to end? But the business has fundamentally changed, hasn't it? If you look at it through the golf prism, golf magazines were essentially paid for by the golf industry, predominantly manufacturers, followed by resorts, courses, places to play. You've only got to open a golf magazine to see where the money is. It's in what we play with and where we play, the travel, those kinds of things. Once the internet developed, there's less need to invest money in advertising in magazines, as more and more of the audience was online, you developed your own. So all the manufacturers now have their own websites and essentially their own media. It doesn't mean they've completely withdrawn from the magazines, but it's gotten a lot messier, hasn't it, and more complicated for them as well. It used to be simple. If you were titleless, you just bought ads in Golf Digest in the US. That's the biggest golf market you could find. It's not right. that simple anymore. No, it, it has gotten more complicated. And uh, for journalists trying to to make a living uh, more difficult, frankly, because um, yeah, a lot of things have changed. And as you said, uh, people, uh, athletes are now taking things in their own hands in terms of writing their own pieces, like uh, for the, for the players tribune where, you know, and, or on the LPGA website. And, you know, I'm not saying that things, uh, I'm not saying those are bad things to, to be around, but if they exist at the expense of having the traditional journalists reporting, then that's not a good thing. It, it, th those other things, it all needs to exist, not just one mm. type of, of uh, piece. Mm. Um, you know, it, it just like you guys probably hear it, you know, people, somebody will say, I just, you know, I just get my news from the internet. Well, there, somebody at some point in the chain is actually paying for that reporter to be in, in a foreign land or at a sporting event or wherever it might be. They, they there's a, there's a sense that this stuff just magically appears when, in fact, somebody is is paying money to send somebody to that location. So you can get your news from the internet, but you know that's a whole other story. How the how the newspaper world let the horse out of the barn and and, and you know didn't charge for things early on and that whole thing. But we're we're all still sort of paying the price for for how that all played out. Well, I've often the, the information on the internet so accurate. Really. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can find whatever information you want. Pick your pick your opinion and go out there and then have it backed up for you, which is the the sort of the truth. That's the scary part. I'm not no. sure, Bill, whether newspapers ever really had a chance against the internet. In truth, yeah. uh, I'm not. Sure. Whilst a lot of people, oh, if they'd done this, this, or this, or this, or, I'm not convinced that any of that would have saved newspapers as we know them. But what it does make me wonder is where does the next generation of reporters and journos actually come from. Newspapers is the only place that's ever properly trained journos, and then they go off to TV and radio and magazines. When newspapers are gone or going, where does the next generation come from? 
Well, I'm a little heartened in what I what I hear in keeping up with my uh, student newspaper, my alma mater, University of North Carolina, the Daily Tar Heel, where I I, I got so much good experience there. And uh, over the last few years, uh, boy, some of the student journalists there, they have really done some serious work, investigative work on on important stories down there. And uh, so I, I think, you know, I don't think uh, students learning learning the right way is, is, if anything, it seems to have accelerated. They seem to be doing, you know, some really fine work. Um, but yeah, I think y- y- you, wor- you worry, though. You worry that... Um, where, where, where is that next generation going to come from? But what I see and hear from my alma mater is good, uh, not necessarily from the journalism school itself, but from the students getting their experience through the independent uh, newspaper. Yeah. I'm, I am Are they going to get the right work experiences, though, Bill, to come out of it all jaundiced and cynical <laughs> like, uh, like Rod? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, you know, you just look at a, a starting salary uh, th- that you might get offered out of college these days versus what I got offered, you know, I got offered less, but you could live on a lot less 40 years ago. That's the problem. Uh, I don't, you know, salaries haven't gone up commensurate with what it costs to live these days. And that's, that's the, that's the tragedy. And, uh, you know, I could in North Carolina, I could live on 12 or $14,000 a year. I could live. Okay. As a you know, young, young man. But now if you make, you know, sadly, thirty, forty thousand. I mean, that—that's not even what twelve or fourteen was forty years ago. It's, uh, you know, you—you know—it's very hard. It's hard to make a living right out of the box. There's well, there's this thing called well. debt yeah. that you might have heard of. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, that I, was, <laughs> I was very lucky. I uh, went to a state university and didn't come out of college uh, with a lot of debt. But man, it's just frightening what some people in America at private universities what they what they uh, go in the hole for. I mean, it's, 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 it's reached a point of like, to what end? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you know, if you, if you come out of college with a hundred thousand dollars or more in debt and you've got a liberal arts degree that, that really guarantees you nothing. I mean, um, it's a, it's a little scary. Yeah, you, you've got a liberal arts degree and a hundred thousand dollars debt is what you've got. Is what you've got at the end. It'll probably could have figured that out before you started if you'd given it some thought. Let's get on to some happier stuff, Bill, because I agree. Um, it, it's not all beer and skittles ahead in that, in that world. I don't think. But you've been in it for a long time, and I think in many ways you and I, our generation, has seen the best of print media in particular uh, in this caper, or certainly the tail end of the best of it. The best of it might have been the 50s and the 60s, but we'll put that aside for a moment. You've had some fabulous experiences, but you, of course, started as a as a dual-talented. We see now that journos have to be everything. You've got to be able to do video, audio, and text. We can see that that was it, but you, you did photos and uh, words when you first started. How did that come about? I don't recall that being the case when I first started in newspapers. So, Well, it was really a uh, uh, golf world, U.S., uh uh, you know, in the, in the, you know, in its, uh, years from, you know, founded in 47 and, you know, I joined them in 84 when it was based in my hometown, it was a very small operation, very small. It was just a couple of editors, uh, and a, and a fact checker and, uh, you know, a typesetter. And then the, the people that actually printed the magazine in the back of the building, but yeah, they basically said, Hey, we'll, we'll hire you, but you know, you got to learn how to take photograph tournament photographs too, which is, you know, I was up for it. Um, and I learned how to do it. And the person who had the job before me, uh, Jim Moriarty, a very good friend of mine, 
he learned and became a very accomplished photographer mm-hmm. and really concentrated on photography for the next 10 or 15 years until he got back into writing more, uh, wrote some wonderful stories for golf world in the two thousands and into the mid, you know, uh, 2014 when golf world, uh, print edition was, was killed off, but yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of fun. It was, it was, you know, I could learn on the job. It was a smaller world obviously. And, you know, if I, if I really messed up, it wasn't, it wasn't the end of the world. So it was fun to, to do that, but yeah. And to a little intimidating as well, but, uh, you know, I, I had some experienced friends that I listened to and, and, uh, uh, learned the best I could and, and got, uh, got, got competent at it. And, uh, I gotta say, uh, photographing a golf tournament, a major particularly, it really always had a bit of a, an athletic connotation in, in terms of, you know, the adrenaline that you got and, and trying to, you know, keep up with the action. And, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, it was physically taxing, but a lot, a lot of fun also, especially if you did get the goods, uh, that, that, you know, you needed when the thing was over. And that would have been at a time when you would have had to get back to the darkroom to just find out whether you'd got the goods or not, Bill. You didn't get to look on the screen and know straight away, did you? That's right. Uh, most of my, all my work really was in the pre-digital age uh, from the mid eighties into the late nineties. And uh, yeah, we shot a color slide film. Uh, so uh, we didn't, uh, I didn't develop that myself, but you, you had very little leeway with exposure and, and uh, you didn't know what you had. And, uh, you know, it was, you're really dating yourself. And I, I talked to my, my buddies of that same era. And, you know, we said, man, when somebody went into a deeply wooded area and, you know, you just, you debated whether you could get away with shooting that 100 ASA roll of film that you had in the camera, or should you <laughs> change right. to the 400 or, you know, right. push it to 800 or whatever. I mean, it sounds absurd today where you can just change ISO with a, a turn of the dial, but those are things you really had to think about, you know, okay, can I shoot this at 250th? Is it going to be Okay. Uh, a second. Uh, so all that stuff now, it sounds like uh, uh, craziness to people that are, uh, shoot digitally, but all that stuff, uh, it, it was, uh, it was challenging, but, but it made it, it made it fun when you, when you succeeded for sure. Horrendously expensive too, Bill. I can recall back in my daily newspaper days, I worked in the Wollongong Bureau outside of Sydney here. It's a satellite city, probably an hour and a half south of, south of Sydney here. And we had our bureau there, but if we had to go further south and do any photos, there was a lady down there who was a hobby photographer she had a dark room set up and it was fantastic and the photographer from our Wollongong office had got to know her so whenever we went down there she'd let us use the room in return for a box of photographic paper I think there were maybe 24 sheets in it and that was like gold for her because the price of that was outrageous and of course at the news limited office in Wollongong we had boxes of the stuff stacked up seven feet high in the dome mm-hmm. you just grab two or three boxes but to her you'd see the look on her face whenever we were coming down because she knew <laughs> she was going to get two boxes of photographic paper and it was a couple of hundred bucks so you know for an amateur photographer it was an amazing thing you're into sure. photography too like i never got into it i've never been interested what is it about photography why do you guys like taking pictures i don't get it uh well for me oh sorry you go no go ahead go ahead, Adrian. You go ahead. well well for me i uh i was lucky enough to play a lot of different golf courses at one point when we were traveling. Um, and uh, I, I felt that, you know, here is an opportunity. I'm at these amazing places. Uh, I want to start documenting it well, um, but as much for me as anything. And uh, it, I, I got to the point where I was amazed that people weren't taking photos as they were playing golf at some of these places. And I was like, well, you know, you've, well, why aren't you taking photos? So that that's what, uh, that was the seed that um, started it for me. 
And but now I do. I enjoy going to tournaments and and uh, and photographing tournaments. And uh, I think that's a that's a real interesting challenge. Uh, it happens quite quickly, surprisingly, uh, as Bill said. It's um, you know golf is slow, but you've kind of got to be ready all the time because the moments happen so quickly and they're so fleeting. So I think there's there's a challenge to that um, photographing tournament golf. I'm very lucky that I can just do it as a hobby. Um, I, I think it's, it's it's pretty tough gig. A friend of ours, David Teese, tells us about a very good shooter who tells us about uh, what it's like to be, um, you know, a star photographer for uh, Getty or somebody these days. It's it's a quite a grind um, having to do multiple sports and uh, uh, the the cycle's extremely quick. You know, it's going talk about not having to develop film. It's going from the camera straight to somebody in an edit suite uh, back in Sydney um, within minutes of taking a photo and uh, getting and getting shoved up on Getty um, for the news feeds all around the world. And uh, that's you know literally the ratio of photos that actually make an impact to the photos. The number of times you hit the shutter button is would be in the tens of thousands to one. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's... A, yeah. Yeah, yet that that photo can stand out, and I was just going to mention. Uh, Brent goes to what I was going to say is that, you know, for all the all the all the video that we saw Phil Mickelson winning uh, the PGA at at age fifty in, in May at Keough Island this year, you know, a still photo by Darren Carroll, a really fine photographer based in Texas. His photo of Phil kind of in the in the crowd, surveying the scene, the crowd right behind him. It just something about that photograph. That photograph will be will be called up. Uh, you know, decades from now, as a as a as a moment uh, of that Phil's amazing win, unexpected win, it just sort of captured, you know, who he is at this time and and what was going on. It was just a tremendous photo, and um, you know, I think you're always going to have that, even if it comes to it that every photograph will be a you know picked out of a a video, you know, which is it's coming to that in some ways, but that one moment is still going to be uh, have a have a a memorability that that uh, moving pictures don't have, I think. Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. I've always had it. You can always recognise a great photo. I think you can see hundreds and hundreds of photos on any given day. You're going to so you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos. But whenever one stands out, you know the, the, yeah. the one that you're talking about. There, the one of Tiger at the Masters on the 18th tee that was just captured right yeah. at Fred transition. Bush. Just an extraordinary yep. photo. I mean, they, they wrote a story about it in the magazine. Yeah. I'm no. pretty sure I wrote a long essay uh, uh, 2013 when the U.S. Open returned to Marion. I wrote a long uh, piece, uh, which you can, you can still find it online, um, about the, the High Peskin photograph of Hogan. Uh-huh. But I used that I used that photograph and really analyzed what, what went into that. And, but I also got into golf photography as a whole and – I, you know, I, I talked about Fred Vujic's great photo of Tiger being sort of the, you know, the, the more modern equivalent of that photo. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a fantastic, fantastic image. Might have been your piece I'm thinking of. Am I right in thinking that it's one of the very few photos Tiger's ever requested a copy of for himself? I don't know. I don't know. I, I would certainly, uh, if I were him, I would want that on my wall, yeah, <laughs> given that, that, you know, what he was doing and yeah. and uh, how, how wonderful an image it, it is. Yeah. What have been some of your favourite stories over the years, Bill? You've written, Lord knows how many you've written, but you've written fabulous in-depth pieces, which is a whole different thing to 
covering tournaments, which would be a very bland box to put it on. What have been some of your favourites? And I know you've written well, at least one book that I know of because we had you on State of the Game to talk about it. Yeah. Um, well, it's, 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 I got about 30 stories in that anthology that came out uh, seven years ago, but one of those stories still sticks with me, a uh, uh, feature about uh, the late Bert Yancey, the, mm-hmm. the American who was uh, battled uh, uh, manic depression, more commonly called bipolar disorder now. But, you know, it was just about his life and his passion for golf. And, and uh, I think I I think I really did uh, and nail it as best I could in 4000 words. I know one of his siblings kindly wrote me after the piece was published and and thanked me and said, I didn't think anybody could do this in a magazine piece, but you've, you've done it. And and that that made me feel quite, quite good because I really immersed myself in that in that story and and was really proud of it. And, and I, I think it, it just, I think it, it, it tried the best I could to tell who this guy was and the struggles he went through and his obsession with the masters that he came close in, but didn't win. And, um, uh, he was a unique, uh, tour player for sure. Did he not make clay models of the greens, replica models he did. of the greens? at he Augusta? Did. He, he did. He made, uh, he made models of the Augusta greens, uh, to try to better understand them and, uh, out of Plato and he painted them. And uh, he, he left them, he, he would leave them under, he stayed in the same house, uh, rental house. And uh, coincidentally, the family's name was Masters. So it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, the man's name was J.B. Masters. And uh, the house no longer exists. It was, it was uh, lost when the, uh, the club bought a lot of that land and, and turned it into parking lots. So the house that Berianci lived in is no longer there. The, the house that he stayed in. stayed in. But yeah, he would leave those models and pull them out every spring when he came back. Wow. Yeah, it's an extraordinary yeah. story. I read that story about Bert Yancey. Yeah. It was quite tough. But I think, you know, that 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 kind of piece where you you, you know it's a it's a complex character, uh, mm-hmm. it, it way beyond way beyond just golf shots. Um that one that one stands out uh, twenty years on. That one that one really does stand out to me. I was I was I'm proud of that one. Mm-hmm. As you as you rightly should be. We often say that there's no characters left in the game, Bill. You've been around the game a long time. Is that true, do you think? Um, no, I don't think that's true. I think I think the, you know, even back in the 70s, uh, some people were saying, hey, the tour is just this faceless brigade of polyester-wearing blondes, you know, that, that hit it a mile, which, you know, hitting it a mile then wasn't quite what uh, hitting it a mile is now. But, no, I think there's always been that tendency that to say to say there aren't characters um, – uh, is is the tour like it was in Jimmy DeMeritt's day or or even Lee Trevino's day? Uh, no, no, it's not. The big money has changed things. Sometimes now uh, tour pros don't even go in the locker room. They just, you know, they 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 change their shoes at their car. You know, the old days tour pros did go in the locker room. They did play cards. They did have a drink, and that happens a lot less. Uh, things have changed in that regard, but that doesn't mean that there aren't players with distinctive personalities. Um, that doesn't, you know, it, it, it they, everybody is not the same. Uh, the fellow who won, who made, who got, who made the hole in one chess and Hadley mm-hmm. yesterday and managed to squeak into the top one twenty five and make the playoffs. I mean, that, that guy's, you know, he's not, he's not, uh, you know, he's, he's a little bit different guy. <laughs> yeah, he's not orthodox as he, in any way. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're there. Uh, a lot of people, DeChambeau is his own story. I mean, love him or, or, or love him, but you know, he's, he's certainly different. Um, 
I think it, I think it's lazy for someone to say there are no characters, uh, but it, it, are there characters in the way they might have been defined uh, a couple of generations ago? Yeah, probably probably different. Yeah, are they just doing it for the pit money? I won't even draw you on that, Bill. That's. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That's a facetious question. Yeah. At best. Last one to finish up. We've taken more of your time than I meant to. What's your outlook for golf? And is it, well, is, it is golf a is golf a two segmented game? Is there professional golf and the rest of golf? Is it two different things you talk about when you talk about the future of golf? Yeah, I think I think um, you know uh, some of the folks that you're close to down in Australia and, and in America that, that you know that. And I'll, th- I'll throw myself in that category, a traditionalist, let's say. We, we think that maybe uh, the, the elite game certainly would be helped by a bit of a, a rein in on, on uh, technology. Whether that will happen ever, I don't know. But I think uh, I'm always struck by what, what Jack Nicholas said often about when he was a young player, a very powerful player in the 60s, that he could – he could back when players had to do exhibitions to make some money, even, even a Jack Nicholas, he'd go to a club and maybe play the best player at that club. And it wasn't like as, as strong as Jack was, it wasn't like night and day versus that club player, really good club player. But now the way everything's changed and, you know, D- Dustin Johnson goes to that club and plays, you know, it's going to be night and day just as far, you know, how far he's hitting the ball. So I think, I think uh, that I think the, the distancing between what the pros can do and, and what everybody else can do, I think the technologies um, allowed that gap to really widen uh, beyond just the talent of the player. And I think that I don't think I don't think a fan watching on TV or in person, if the longest hitter in the field hits it 285 versus 365 that fan is still going to be impressed. Hmm. You know, it's still going to stand out. I don't, I just don't get the the fact that some people don't think the, uh, it, it would. Um, and I'll, I'll never, I'll never understand that because if the longest hitter is going to be the longest hitter. Uh, so I, th- I think that's, that is a continuing issue for the, at the elite level. Um, I think some people on the club level will want to play what pros play, they don't want. They want. They don't want to play different equipment. So if if, it, if there are ever equipment restrictions put in place, it'll be interesting to see if if club golfers, uh, you know, go that route too, or if they keep playing with equipment that's allowed at their level. Yeah, of course. The thing that gets lost in all that debate, Bill, it's not about the players. It's about the courses. The distance problem is only a problem because courses are finite. They're a finite resource. They can't continually keep stretching to offer the same challenge. And therefore, ultimately, if you're the PGA Tour, you have to wonder about the entertainment value at some point. And I think yeah. we're, I think I, we're I, approaching that point. So. I think I think that you know I think one of the great things in TV golf that the shot tracer thing. I think that's a great yeah. a great thing. It allows the the viewer to really see where the shot is going. I think that's a great thing. Because you can't the, see it in person, Bill. Yeah, you can't you, see it. You see cannot see the ball in person. It <laughs> takes off so quick. Weren't you at the open? Logue, weren't you watching Roy drives at the open? Yeah, I had to. I, I was on the practice fairway right behind him. And I, I couldn't see the ball. It was just yeah. shooting off. I eventually yeah. trained my eyes to look about a hundred meters in front. Wow. And I could catch, I could pick it up and, and then it would just disappear over some hill that can't lose to you. Couldn't you couldn't see it. Wow. Like but mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's quite it's like a trick shot, the the way he, he hits driver. It's it's quite a thing. 
yeah, you wonder what the you wonder what the ultimate value of it is in a game where things these things are relative as opposed to absolute. If you want to be the longest driver, go in the long drive competition. But long drive competition is not as popular as golf for a reason. It's a single faceted pursuit, right? That makes it ultimately less interesting both to watch and to play. Bill, it's been great to talk to you. Tell me where we can find the albatross so people can go and yeah, sign up. Uh, it's on the the Substack S U B S T A C K the Substack platform. So it's the albatross dot substack.com um it's where the same place where uh jeff shackleford's uh, the quadrilateral uh, exists yeah. so you can find uh, me there as well as uh, as jeff and, and uh, what are what are the options there bill is there a free version a paid version yeah you can subscribe for free um or you you can pay a monthly uh or a yearly fee if you you think it's a value um uh so hopefully over time more people convert to the to actually paying and uh you know I, i'll be writing a bit more hopefully for it but uh how often you know, do you been, put it out? Is it on a regular uh, it's, schedule? Uh, basically it? weekly. Basically, okay. been doing one, uh, one a week. Uh, missed a, missed a week or two because of the Olympics, but um, that's that's my that's my goal, and and hopefully uh, a little more often for for paying uh, subscribers uh, down the road. Something extra for them. Well, it's been fantastic to catch up with you today, and I'm, I can see Logue looking that up to get the link so I can put it in the show notes while you're talking, which is very good of him. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, that'll be in the show notes. You brace yourself for dozens more subscribers <laughs> well, I, want, I want to build it up build up my australian base because they, <laughs> i do have some subscribers it's kind of cool um but uh yeah it's uh it's such a global game now bill that's the truth of it isn't it? i mean we're all watching the same things and getting the same coverage that wasn't the case 20 years ago there's very much we all see the game through the same lens no matter where we are in the world now you know i'll just end on this anecdote years ago when bob charles was getting inducted into the world golf hall of fame there was a teleconference and i was on the call and and unprompted bob sort of was talking about how he you know his interest in golf as a young man and he said he subscribed to golf world in in, yeah. in the US yep. and gosh knows it would arrive you know a month or more uh or you know 6 weeks later probably but he he loved to get them to keep up with with what was going on on PGA tour and Hogan particularly so i mean it, it, i love to hear that story because you know even though it was late he that's where he was getting his information about the the world that he wanted to join someday and uh, as someone who later worked at the magazine, I was always struck by that as uh, being very cool that he said that. And now we sit here and talk over video like the Jetsons. Remember when we used to watch <laughs> the Jetsons and say, as if that'll ever happen? Man, there's a, there's a Jetsons were, were ahead of the time, man. They were <laughs> – God, I love that show. But, yeah, we never thought it was going to happen. But We haven't got the flying cars yet, Bill, where they drop the little one out of the bottom and he goes off to school and he's <laughs> own little – that's what I want. When we get to there, then I'm going to say, we know, this stuff's easy, but the flying cars uh, is what we want to get to. That's the place. <laughs> Fabulous of you to take some time, Bill. Really appreciate it. Uh, always well, enjoy catching uh, up. Thank you, uh, Rod and Adrian. Uh, pleasure to pleasure to be with you. We'll have you back at some point, I'm sure. There's uh, there's not. What, what does Roy and HG say? Too much Bill Fields is barely enough. That's the uh, <laughs> that's the theory we subscribe to. Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate right. it, mate. And Adrian, Th- always good you. to have you aboard. What Thanks, episode? Are we, what episode are we up to? Eighty-eight. This is eighty-eight. I'm this is eighty-eight. Oh, so am I. This has been episode 88. We'll be back with episode 89 next week on the Good Good Golf Podcast.